everyone, and, and welcome to this BGI Knowledge uh, podcast or webcast, depending on how you're accessing it. And I'm delighted to have with me today uh, Mr. Farooq Khan from Luton in the UK. And he, we're going to discuss his module on acute retention. And we've chosen this topic because it's uh, an important and frequent problem internationally. We have, uh, I think, about 25,000 cases per year in the UK. And for the purposes of this discussion, we're really going to concentrate on male acute retention, secondary to BPH, which accounts really for 75, 80% of, of cases. So we invited questions from BGI Knowledge users, and um, we'll see how many we can get through in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, we'll go in some sort of logical order, presentation, and then uh, immediate management and definitive management. So if we look at the presentation first, we've got a question here from Than I. Uh, great question. It's quite long, so I've sort of... Um, cut it down a little bit uh, and the essence is really about predicting acute retention and I suppose the implications being can we avoid it what factors do you feel are most important so whilst you're having a little think about that uh, I just I, I looked through the the literature uh, that you'd quoted in your your module there's the the Olmsted County study which looked at men aged 40 to 79 and their annual incidence was 0.7 percent and in the UK our HES data 0.6 percent um, or 0.3 percent incidence but actually then when they looked at the men specifically in the seventh decade it got far far uh, commoner 33 percent chance of acute uh, retention in the seventh decade so age is obviously important. What other factors do you feel are, are important as predictors of retention? Uh, thank you for having me, Rob, first and foremost. Uh, again, it's a nice way to start the conversation because this is actually something that I think adds science to the world of urology. It's, it's, it's the in thing to be able to predict progression of disease, whatever that be, but in this context, BPH. And as you very nicely start off the conversation, age is a very important factor. And increasingly, the aging male has to put up with a number of things. And, and dare I say it, it's going to happen to, even to the best of the urologists in this uh, audience. Uh, urinary retention will catch up and some mm -hmm. of us will operate on our colleagues. But the important thing is that age is one aspect of the uh, thing that we know will predict very comfortably uh, the likelihood of urinary retention. But the, going back to that reference of the Olmsted County that we refer to in the module, that is a seminal piece of work that was came out in the late 90s. Yeah. And it was actually a very good piece of work that actually used a whole host of parameters that it looked at and actually stratified that risk into um, a measurable number so that you could actually say for a decade, for each decade of your life, as it were, from your 40s onwards, with certain risk factors such as increasing age, increasing symptoms, decreasing flow. And the magic number that came up in that conversation and that paper was a flow that was less than 12 mils per second. And again, many people in the audience will gauge, well, actually, this is where the science about the 12 mils per second comes in and uh, about predicting urine retention and outcomes from surgery, which we'll talk about a bit later on. 
but also yeah. uh, simple things like uh, PSA. Uh, the higher your PSA, the greater your risk of progressing to urinary retention. Um, age we mentioned. Post-word residual is all one of those things that comes and goes. It's a fashionable thing at times, and it's not. And again, they they, they mention that a little bit later on as part of a follow-up study, but actually that's not a strong predictor in, in all of this. Um, prostate volume is, again, very important. It stands to reason. The larger your prostate, the more likely you're going to have trouble from it. And again, they predicted uh, any prostate over the size of about 30, 40 cc was likely as it as it got um, larger or the patient got older, an increasing symptom score index on the AUA symptom score was likely to be a predictor. So when we quantify all of those, and if you've given, and you've given some very nice numbers about the risk of retention, and again, people, some of the members of the audience might say, well, that's not a very high risk, 0.3% or but actually, when you're in this seventh decade of life and you've got a very high symptom score and you've got a very poor flow and you've got a very large prostate and yeah. you've got a high PSA, your risk is knocking on 10% easily. Uh, per, you know, we're talking you know, per year um, of going into urinary retention. Right. right. So we can predict. The question is, there are predictors. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to do in clinic as a clinician, to guide the patient and say, well, these are your factors that are likely to produce over the next five years uh, a risk of urine retention. And that will guide the conversation about treatment options for the patient. Sure. Well, I suppose the obvious sort of lead on from that is that if we can identify these risks, is there anything we can do to mitigate it? I mean, thinking about 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, I mean, what, what do you think about their usefulness? What, what, well there, well, there is very clear evidence of 5-alpha reductase inhibitors on their own. And we, before we even move on to combination treatments that will yeah. come across in our conversation, we know from the PLESS study from uh, many years ago, back again from the 1990s, that actually just taking finasteride, so if you shrink the prostate, so yeah. size we said was a risk factor, but so if you make the prostate smaller, Surely then it follows your risk goes down. And that's exactly what happened in the PLESS study, uh, where the use of finasteride over a four-year period reduced your risk of retention by almost a half. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, pharmacotherapy can make a difference uh, in definitely reducing the risk of progression. And again, bringing the, uh, the idea of combination treatment uh, will also, as we know, reduce your risk of BPH progression and urinary retention. So yes, as scientists, as clinicians, we can mitigate some of those risk factors. I, I often have a, a lot of patients on dual therapy with an alpha blocker and a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, but I sometimes will stop the alpha blocker after about nine months because in theory the Five-alpha reductase inhibitors done its bit and shrinking the prostate. Is that a reasonable thing to do? I mean, should we count on dual therapy indefinitely? What do you feel? So, 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 I mean, again, a lot of clinicians have done that over the years. I, I tend not to do that in my practice. Uh, if it's tolerable, I, I encourage them to take the dual therapy and the combination treatment. And the reason is because we know, again, from uh, combination treatment studies, such as the MTOP studies, such as COMBAT, uh, that actually taking both will give you the highest risk protection, as it were, from progressing on BPH um, uh, symptom scores and urinary retention. Now, whilst there is very clear evidence stopping the alpha blocker uh, will 
uh, are still allowing good outcome for patients, eventually that risk will disappear. That, that sort of benefit will disappear. That risk will start to rise again. Mm-hmm. So that eventually it does catch up uh, over uh, many years uh, on, with BPH progression that we don't understand. Okay. Whilst whilst we're on drugs and 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 symptoms, um, you know, a lot of these patients will have combination storage symptoms as well. And intuitively, there's a risk of an anticholinergic of inducing retention. Well, is that something that we worry too much about? I think we do. I think we really do worry about it. And again, it's like most things. Uh, unless you show somebody the evidence, we worry about the theoretical risk and and, and the anecdotal risk that we all, all have experienced. Uh, mm. Many a patient has said to me, Doc, I was all right until you put me on that drug. Uh, and um, but, but at the end of the day, we have evidence. Again, there's a there's a very, very good, and I'll put this out to the audience to look it up, a very good meta-analysis um, and systematic review, actually, uh, of uh, data by... Blake James, a chap called Blake James. And actually, he looked at all the studies uh, with anti-muscarinics. And this was before the days uh, of Myra Begron. And yeah. we were actually able, he was able to actually say that the risk of urine retention was actually 0.3%. So it was less than 1%. Right. And again, if, if you, again, I put it to ourselves as clinicians and the audience. If you think about it, how many people have you put on and an anti-muscarinic that did slip into urea retention. Um, and it's you, you'd be hard-pushed to find one person that you actually tipped over the edge. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. I suppose if you've got somebody that's got a lot of those risk factors and you've had maybe more wary. Yeah, I, I, I think you might be a bit wary. But again, in that particular uh, meta-analysis, when they looked at all the data, they found your post-word residual went up by something silly as a clinical, clinically insignificant volume of something like 11 or 12 mils. Yeah. My, my personal practice is that I do use a lot of anti-muscarinics yeah. because, again, understanding the disease process of an enlarging prostate in the Asian male is an understanding not, not only is it a flow issue, it is also a storage issue. And actually the patients are much more bothered by their storage <laughs> symptoms, such as a frequent frequency nocturia yeah. and the urgency and the urge-related leakage. And it's that and that's for that for my in my practice. You know, not only do I use combination treatments, i.e., tamsulosin and finasteride, those are drugs I choose. But you could have any combination of alpha blocker uh, or five alpha lactase inhibitor. I actually call call it like most clinicians would do um, triple therapy. I, I give them solofenacin uh, in addition. And very often with mixed symptoms, and this is why you have to look at the prostate symptom score, actually look at the questions the patients are answering, I will often give a combination of tamsulosin and solofenacin from the start. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's really helpful. So we, we've covered a lot of the presentation and potential to predict retention. And we'll move on to a question from uh, Siva Shankar, Meganathan, and, and others, actually, sort of combination of um, questions on sort of immediate management. Uh, first thing is, wh- what are your thoughts about um, suprapubic versus urethral catheterization? I mean, the potential to reduce urinary tract infection, urethral injury, and Given the ability for a trial avoiding with a suprapubic catheter, but really day to day practical, you know, you know, day to day practice, 24 hours a day, 
is a superfluity a reasonable expectation? What, what, what's your I, I, I think I think the straight answer is no. Uh, and again, we live in a world where, as we're getting older, our, the, the skill mix that are, is present at the front line in delivering urology services can be very variable. And the idea of I mean, first of all, why would anyone want to put a superpubic in? What is the benefit? What is? The, I mean, you've mentioned a few of them. Mm. And I, as I say, I years ago worked in a unit as, as an A&E officer uh, in Hinchinbrook, not far from uh, Cambridge, where actually it, the consultant urologist insisted everybody got a superpubic on right. the basis that it would, a urethral catheter potentially damaged the long-term f- function of the sphincter. And again, over the years, I've realized that was overcooked. That idea was not really necessarily held uh, strongly uh, as an evidence-based view. So my feeling is that I'd be really careful about putting superpubics in. First and foremost, what's the benefit? How long is the catheter going to stay in for as well? I mean, we're talking short-term, hopefully, catheterizations. Um, and, 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 and ultimately, superpubic catheters are dangerous in the wrong hands. And uh, and if we get into a cycle where we're encouraging somebody to put a suprapubic catheter in when they're not comfortable to do so or they misdiagnose urinary retention, then I think we are possibly just causing it. We're going to to generate a disservice for our patients. I suppose there is recent recommendation to use it with ultrasound guidance, isn't it? So actually, difficult. But again, out of hours, and who's who's the operator on the ultrasound? Uh, more than anything else. So I, I would not use a super sure. sure. Okay. So then how long before um, trial without catheter and everybody on an alpha blocker? So, um, the answer is yes. Uh, and again, there's a little bit of hesitation there. I think first and foremost, as clinicians, and again, I, I put this, we refer to this in the module about precipitated and spontaneous urinary retention. I think we, you want to look at those people in whom a precipitant brought on the urinary retention. So you want to correct that yeah. constipation, urinary tract infection. But you also want to be very careful about who you want, who you don't want to remove the catheter in. You know, not everybody, just because they went into retention, should be looking to have their catheter removed. And again, we'll touch upon this as, part of the, as the conversation develops. But for those people who have had acute urinary retention, then mm. there is clear evidence that putting them on an alpha blocker and the actual study was the Alfer study by McNeil's team in, in, in Edinburgh. But they basically showed very clearly that an alpha blocker did make a difference in uh, taking it for 72 hours, then removing the catheter at that juncture, finding that the greater number of patients were catheter free. And that's an evidence based intervention. So the answer has to be yes, an alpha blocker. And that is a class effect. Tamsulosa will do the same thing as the alfusers in the alpha study. Yeah, okay. Good, all right. Um, and it, the length of time, sort of anywhere three to seven days? And so, so, uh, sort of time. Yeah, again, when we balance real world with ideal world, so the ideal world, if we're using the evidence base, it was 72 hours. Mm. But again, we have to be practical in our, uh, in, mm. it, certainly in the UK, the delivery of NHS services. services because ultimately, we don't all have the uh, ability to bring patients back at 72 hours. You may argue, well, do they have to come to a hospital setting? Why can't the district nurse do it? I must say, I, I will say that I'm in favour of a supervised trial without catheter. And, and the reasons are, 
a lot of men sometimes are prematurely recatheterized mm. uh, on the basis of uh, a variety of reasons. And some people are, will drift back into urinary retention. And that's something, something that we'll talk about when once the patient is, has been got out of urinary retention. But my strong feeling is that in my practice, it's a, it's a week. And that allows any possible precipitant to be addressed, such as constipation. It allows the patient to go home. And we have the ability in our clinic uh, to have a supervised nurse-led trial without, clinic, trial without catheter clinic. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's just a quick one here, just to really, um, and I'll dismiss it, but I mean, intermittent blocking of the catheter, if you've got a, a large residual, we can, we, there's no, no value in that. No, I mean, it was, <laughs> no, there is no value at all. I think people believed it made a difference, but it doesn't, no, makes no difference at all. It doesn't, good. Okay. Um, so we'll come on to this, what happens as a sort of definitive surgical procedure in a minute. But if you're going to offer surgery, what about so optimum timing? I just again looking through through your module, um Rob Pickard's paper on, on the National Prostatectomy Order from 1998. It's incredible how things have changed. Back then 55% of their patients had their bladder outflow tract surgery on their mission but a world away from that now although you could argue that actually doesn't end in the best results it had a higher mortality absolutely rating absolutely. at that time so what what do you feel is, is the optimum timing so, so we, we know partly from the national prostatectomy audits and from other uh, data sources that and an, uh, your post-operative risk of a complication is highest within the first 30 days of urine retention. So if you are doing what we, what would be called a hot TURP, you, yeah. you're, you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're tripling the risk of um, complications from the surgery and, and perioperative death as well. That, that's the other issue. And one part of this was thought to be related to some cardiac issues to do with the physiology uh, of urine retention. Um, so from from our perspective, I think that a hot URP is out, or a hot bladder outlet procedure is out. Don't forget the National Prostatectomy Audit was now about thirty years ago, over thirty years ago, yeah, nineteen ninety. Yeah. So so my timing, it would be actually again real world versus ideal world. It's trying to find a balance between a, a, a time frame that will allow safe operating on the patient, but not too long that their quality of life is impaired with the catheter-associated urinary tract infections, the, the pain of a catheter, the, the socioeconomic uh, disturbance that causes patients, their inability to work, for instance. So I would say a four to six week window is reasonable. Having uh, and again, we 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 mustn't forget because we're still young. We don't have a catheter. But if you've ever had a catheter, or you've spoken to somebody who's had a catheter, it is a miserable existence for a large number of people. Sure. Uh, so I would say four to six weeks ideal. Well, but the reality: a lot of patients are waiting three to six months for their operation. Yeah, or longer in some places. Or longer, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. What, what, I mean, I suppose you have got somebody waiting a long time. What about clean intermittent self-catheterization as opposed to an indwelling catheter? Is that realistic or is, it, is that theory rather than practice? And... It, again, it's there. People do do it. 
But my practice and my experience is that a lot of people do not want to do self-catheterization, intermittent self-catheterization. Yes, it has the benefits of obviously freeing up them up, um, freeing them from a catheter. That's fine. But most people actually just want the definitive operation and want to be peeing and want to be catheter-free. Whilst, yes, it's a safe option uh, in the right patients, I think most people actually, when given a choice, they do not take up the offer of self-catheterization. But it, there's no harm in offering it. And again, yes. offering it shows that you're thinking holistically for the patient but the reality is it's it's turned down very quickly yeah um, most, I, I would agree <laughs> with that yeah. so we we've, we've looked at sort of presentation some immediate management we'll look now a bit more at the long term i mean what um what proportion of bladder effluent tract surgery is for acute retention i mean again in that paper by rob picard it was 31 percent i mean it feels like it's more than that to me now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. I think I think things have changed in the last thirty years in the sort of people who are presenting for surgery. And the yes, you're right. It was I think thirty one percent in the national prostatectomy audit. Yeah. But when we look at our bladder outlet uh, workload, and obviously I, I do a lot of holep surgery. We do yeah. about two hundred holeps a year. I can confidently say the last time we looked at this, it was 70%. Really? Two-thirds of patients are having a catheter at the time of their surgery. And I, I've got a theory about this, and I think it's because a lot of patients get put on medication, which is there, available. Pa patients soldier on thinking they're going to be all right with the medication. They're doing okay. They self-adjust. And also, I sometimes do wonder whether... Patients are actually, or, or clinicians aren't keen to offer operations. They seem less, less keen to offer an operation that can right. have a life-changing uh, outcome for some patients. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the hesitancy is. Maybe these patients don't come up to secondary care as quickly as we want them to. Um, they manage to, um, in the community, by uh, our, uh, family doctors or general practitioners, but I suspect it's a combination of affairs yeah. where patient and um, medical services sort of combine to make patients delay coming, and therefore they end they end up with a red line uh, endpoint urinary retention. Mm -hmm. I can well, definitely say two thirds are definitely retention in our series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and I suppose the the other um, so if. Two thirds or seventy percent are, are are for retention. What's the natural history of a successful trial without catheter? How many of those people will actually ultimately come come to surgery? My my feeling is actually it's a huge proportion of them. Well, it is because again we we, we have that in the we have that in the literature. We have that as an evidence base. For instance, mm. for going back to the alpha study, that's again referenced mm. in the module. And something we've just spoken to uh, spoken about earlier, we know that there was a second phase to that study where they followed these patients up who had a successful trial without catheter for about six months. And yeah. what they found was that whilst the alpha blocker blue, uh, group, sorry, uh, the people who were still on alfuzazin uh, had a lower rate of uh, BPH surgery at six months at about 17%, and then the placebo, placebo arm, it was about 24%. That's still one in four men at six months ending up in retention after uh, a period of retention. And that goes back to one of the risk factors. If you've got a history of retention once, 
And there's a reason for it. Uh, You're absolutely right, Rob. And that's something, again, as clinicians, we must get into understanding when we take a history from our patients that actually ask them about the events of retention and historical retention, such as post-operative urine retention. Whilst we accept that that's a special group of people, that obviously is a sign that this person is going to have some problems in the future. So in answer to the question, really... If you've had a successful trial without catheter, you, you're not off the hook, uh, and that goes and that comes back to uh, whether you, you follow these people up or not. And in my mm. practice, I offer them a follow up at three months, so I can try I to stratify these people. It's really important to follow them up. Absolutely, it? absolutely. The, the, the trial without clinic, trial without catheter clinic is not a point where you exit urology services, in my opinion. In fact, that's still part of the entry point uh, of working out whether or not you're eventually going to end up with elective bladder outlet surgery. Yeah, okay. All right, so we'll we'll just talk to finish off really on the definitive surgical management. There's clearly a lot of potential options, you know, TURP and laser nucleation, whether that be HOLEP or thulium or um, even green light. Um, and there are, yeah, there's aquablation or, or even Eurolift has been used. Yeah. Yes. What's, uh, what's your feeling as uh, the best uh, way to manage these people differently? Well, uh, well, I will have an inherent bias because I perform a lot of whole lab surgery. So, well, but uh, again, well, we, we do, we encourage because we, we believe that if we, if the surgery is so good, we should be rolling it out. Yeah. And there is, like most things in, in our country, there is a postcode lottery. And we have a very southeast bias towards Holen. But I'm, I'm delighted to report that through some of the people coming through us, mm. spending time with us, being mm. trained in Holep in a very supervised environment, we are getting pockets of Holep services pop, uh, popping up around the country. And yeah. uh, I think it's very important that if you believe in a uh, a definitive surgical treatment, you share that knowledge. Mm. Uh, I, I still feel I'm young enough to be able to share that knowledge. Uh, I'm not long <laughs> in the tooth yet. Uh, although it does remind me about one, what one of my um, bosses used to say, there's only one way to skin my cat. Uh, but that's not true now. There are many options for all patients. Uh, but if you look at the literature and you're looking for an operation um, in relation to urinary retention, You want to pick an operation that, one, gets you out of retention, gets you peeing as well as you can do, and is Mm -hmm. durable, and is safe, and has a low complication rate. And Holep surgery fits that. It is a very durable operation uh, when it comes down to reoperation rates of only less than 1% at 10 years compared to TURP. Well, it is, because you are very nicely enucleating the uh, uh, obstructing tissue. You're not shaving it back. You're actually mm. taking the whole enucleating, sorry, you're taking away the whole obstructing tissue. So the evidence base is out there in the literature, and I would encourage the audience, very much so, to look at the flow rates from a, a post-op, flow rates from a HOLEP and a TURP, green lights. The, the message really is that there are lots of techniques out there, and all techniques... Uh, have a, have a place. I'm a very strong believer that everything has a place correctly. Mm. But in urine retention, you've already crossed that red line. 
And what you need is not something to control yeah. symptoms, but you want something to be durable and to prevent you going back into retention. And an operation that removes the greatest amount of tissue you want to, and is durable is clearly the operation you, you would want. And it's in nucleating techniques, be that with a homium laser or with a green light laser, something called green LEP, green light laser and nucleation of the prostate, or THULEP. Any operation that nucleates will remove the greatest amount of tissue and produce the greatest durable, long-term, uh, successful outcome. So I would say it's a nucleating procedure that, uh, with the safety profile that the homium laser carries and the evidence base uh, behind it, it's yeah. not a it's not a bad choice. I wouldn't turn it down. <laughs> okay, well, I, think, I think we get the message there. <laughs> But as, there is an inherent bias there, Rob. So no, no, the no, sure, sure, be, sure. Have, I mean, the, there, are, there are some papers coming about, about aquablation, which I suppose is easier to, to learn, and, yeah. uh, but, and it has a, a similar um, benefit. But, um, sure, sure. But again, it's, it's, it's rolled out and it's this evidence base. It's still early in its sort of um, application to the clinical work for a uh, clinical uh, scenario but what i would say also is let's take urolift for instance you mentioned urolift and i think there is evidence that urolift does help in retention and again uh, your uh, your my contemporary and your colleague uh, mark mm. rochester was part of the study the pulsar study that looked at this sure. but when you look at the pulsar study you're looking at you know week four Urine um, or catheter free rates of still around 50, 60 percent. And uh, at three months, I think it was about 70, 80 percent. Again, mm -hmm. if you've got a catheter and you want to be catheter free, you want mm -hmm. a real high guarantee that you will be catheter free. Yeah. And we, you and I know that even with TURPs, which has stood the test of time, but it's now been replaced by another operation that starts with the letter H. Uh, it's, we do know that actually day one, catheter-free rates are in the order of 90%. Yeah. And those people yeah. who fail, they will be peeing a, few, a week or two later. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, now I think that's, um, I think I'd agree with that, you know, um, one operation. And it, it sort of makes sense to remove maximum tissue when you're, Intention is likely to result in the, the best outcome. Absolutely. And again, again to the audience, if you were in retention, what would you like? What would you like to get yourselves out of retention? And again, it's it's if it's good for you, it's good for the public. Okay. All right. I, I think we, we've sort of used up quite a lot of time there, Farouk, but many, many thanks for that helpful sort of insight into the your man, your manuscript, your module, and sort of day to day management of acute retention. And just sort of summarise some key points. Um, I hope I get them right. The risk factors, poor flow in particular, but also rising symptom score, age, increasing size of prostate. Try without catheter at sort of three to seven days, having addressed any reversible causes if there are any. Alpha block A prior to trial without catheter, assuming a trial without catheter is a reasonable option. It's not necessary for everybody. Continue the alpha blocker um, indefinitely and consider a five alpha reductase inhibitor for large prostates, sort of over, over sort of 40 mils thereabouts. 
no absolute guide to surgical management, but maximum clearance of tissue with an enucleating laser procedure is, is probably the best option. <laughs> or, or an open prostatectomy, but that has its morbidity. <laughs> and if you pass a trial with that catheter, a new urological follow-up. Um, there's a number that will come on to bladder tract surgery in the future. I think that's right. I think that's a very nice summary of what we've discussed as, as, as a rundown of urinary retention and its management. And then just to add to the point that you made about those patients who are inappropriately offered trial without catheters, I think, that, again, it's in the literature, and I encourage the audience to go and look at it, and, I, and we do reference it in the module, that yeah. the, the patients who are older, who have large residuals, and the, the, the number that came up in the study by Devan was uh, 1,500 milliliters, those mm. people, and, and the age was greater than 80, those people do not need a trial without catheter, especially if they had a lead-up of yeah. urinary symptoms to the end point of your retention. And again, it's for the audience to think about. Uh, so there are some patients who don't need a trial without catheter. They just need definitive uh, intervention. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. It's, it's pointless you know, putting them through another trial without catheter, which is not going to be successful. So I would just like to finish with a, a thank you to everyone that submitted questions. Uh, thank you very much. And, and do look out for our, our next in, in the series, which is going to be on management of sepsis um, in urology with uh, Mr. Zaf Tandogdu from UCLH. So that'll be in the next uh, month or two, I hope. Uh, thanks very much, cool. everybody. Thank Goodbye. you. Thank you for the lovely questions. Thank you.